Okay, so for a while now, I've been meaning to do an episode on presuppositional apologetics, which is the sort of favored philosophical tactic of many who identify themselves as belonging to the Reformed Christian tradition, um, broadly speaking, the Calvinist Christian tradition. Um, that's the set of debate tactics that they tend to favor these days. Um, although I understand that it's supposedly distinct from Reformed epistemology, um, which is sort of Alvin Plantinga's thing, and it's just about the human intellect being darkened uh, after the fall and there being limits to what can be reached uh, by the human intellect. Uh, but um, presupposition, uh, presuppositionalism itself um, is just the idea that um, uh, the Christian worldview, or the Reformed Christian worldview, whatever specific Christian worldview one happens to hold, that can be assumed um, at the outset of argumentation without embarrassment or without um, any uh, epistemological or rhetorical problems. Presuppositionalism is the idea that it's proper to assume the Christian worldview at the outset of discussion and then um, argue for the primacy of the Christian worldview by demonstrating the incoherence of all other rival worldviews. Um, this is in contrast to, I think, uh, so-called classical apologetics. I can't remember the other term that's used for it, but you know, classical apologetics sort of doesn't assume the existence of God They'll reason linearly from a set of premises to the existence of God. And intuitively, that seems like the more straightforward and fair approach. And um, for a long time, I did not like or trust presuppositional apologetics. I'm thinking back to when I was an atheist, for example. I, I didn't think um, presuppositionalism... Um, was valid precisely because of the circularity um, that it operates on. And um, now that I'm a believer, it's still not my preferred, well, at least let me put it like this. Now that I'm a believer, the particular reformed uh, brand of presuppositionalism that um, is basically what the word presuppositionalism means in, you know, current, uh, in, in contemporary discourse, uh, it's still not appealing to me. But I, I no longer think that, that the principle behind what they're doing is flawed. I now think, um, based on um, my sort of mature uh, philosophical thinking on presuppositionalism and, and the philosophical areas that it, that it implicates or involves, um, I now think that presuppositionalism is a good idea in theory, but it just tends to be badly executed. And um, I wrote uh, a few notes explaining what I mean by that. So I think I'm going to read those notes and then comment on them as I go, um, wherever I think commentary is necessary. Okay. The basic idea of presuppositionalism, that something logically necessary must be assumed and that rival worldviews must be shown to be incoherent, is basically correct. What a lot of people don't 
necessarily realize is when you prove the logical necessity of something, you don't go about it by constructing some kind of positive case. Something logically necessary is so because its denial is unthinkable. So, um, meaning that the demonstration of the logical necessity of something goes about through a kind of, it, it, it proceeds uh, by a kind of negative argumentation. Just, it just says, start with anything other than this, you run into problems. That's the only legitimate way to prove um, the logical necessity of something, as I've done with God, um, uh, using a kind of idealist model. I've um, argued for, or, or really explicated the meaning of uh, the logical necessity of God's existence using the following approach. Um, did God ever begin to exist? If so, that's an operation, like first, no God, then God. It's a time-like operation. Well, um, if there's an operation, then that needs to occur in a mind for sort of um, Barclayan idealistic reasons, um, about which more in previous episodes. So, if first no God, then God, that's an operation. An operation must occur in a mind in order to be real, but the most ultimate mind in which an operation occurs is by definition God. Likewise, if God could bring an end to his own existence such that first God, then no God, that, would, that too would be an operation. Uh, and in order to have ontological reality, it would have to occur in a mind Again, the most ultimate mind in which any operation occurs is that of God. But, you know, that's another way to, of saying that, that the operation of God ceasing to exist, in order for that to be real, it must occur in a mind. But if it occurs in, you know, a mind, namely God's mind, then that shows you how God's mind can never truly cease to exist. You'll notice I don't go about this in the kind of modus ponens way. If P, then Q... There's P, therefore there's Q. In other words, I'm, I'm making a kind of presuppositionalist type of move here. Um, and that's the sense in which I think presuppositionalism is legitimate. Okay. Um, now, I recently listened to an episode um, of The Examined Life by Phil Kalberg. And I like that podcast. It's doing a lot of what I'm trying to do. I think um, Phil Kalberg is, is, is a very um, interesting and able presenter of ideas. Um, when it comes to presuppositionalism, I disagree with his take because he argued that um, the, the basic flaw with presuppositional apologetics is that it confuses the order of being with the order of knowing. Um, so the order of being is like, you know, first God exists and then the world exists. And then in the world, we use our senses to arrive at knowledge, etc. And the order of knowing is that it's like, first we use our senses to arrive at knowledge. And then that knowledge ultimately takes us to the idea that God exists. And, um, so Kalberg was saying that presuppositional apologetics, they're inappropriately conflating these two things and that actually it is legitimate to begin from your, um, you know, sense data uh, and then reason your way to God. Now, to an extent, see, I, I don't know exactly how I would critique this critique, um, because in a sense, I agree. And in other words, 
If you take something like what Chris Langan did with his cognitive theoretic model of the universe, that I think is your best candidate for for um, arguing uh, presuppositionally. That that theory is so tightly constructed that it is truly what what Langan uh, describes as as uh, logically idempotent. It's a thing that, in order to in order to disagree with it, you have to presuppose it. And every time you try to break out of its framework, you arrive at insoluble problems. So take this CTMU, take this like really tight and valid, like tautological description of God slash ultimate reality, you know, at least at a certain level of generality. How, how do you arrive at that? You know, you're not, you're not born knowing it. You, you, um, you learn some stuff, you, you're a baby, you play with toys, you form uh, sensory, uh, I mean, you learn to recognize sensory patterns, you learn to recognize words, you learn to um, understand language at a more abstract level, and then you're ready to reason your way to something like the CTMU. But then, once you are in possession of knowledge like that, let's say, you recognize that the way to go about demonstrating its, its primacy over all other systems is presuppositionally, because that, that framework is logically necessary. So um, that is basically how I would frame the issue and how exactly that connects with uh, Phil Kalberg's criticism that presuppositionalism just conflates or confuses the order of being with the order of knowing. I, I'm not sure, but that's how I see it. I don't see any problems in that. Um, I don't see any problems in, in, in what I laid out. Um, and... Uh, now, look, if the objection is simply that, you know, someone isn't necessarily going to agree with you if you assume what must be proven, you know, because you're essentially committing a logical fallacy there. See, that's a tricky objection to address, again, because it's, it's, it's partly right. When you, don't, when you don't get the logical necessity of God right, when you don't frame it in such a way where its necessity is, is, is apparent, then yes, you're gonna you're gonna run into problems because you just have like this kind of god of the gap who exists necessarily. What is what does it mean that the god of the gap exists necessarily? Um, I don't know. It just means that he has to exist. And um, unless you assume my mysterious definition of God, you can't get anywhere. Well, that really just seems to substitute one mystery with another, because it never really explicates the sense in which uh, God's existence is necessary. I'll say a bit more about that later. See, the thing is, if you can begin from a worldview that is truly logically idempotent and, and validly characterize it as such, then presuppositionalism is the right way to go. Now, again, though, the fact that uh, presuppositionalism is the way one argues for one's worldview does not imply that... Uh, one did not reach this worldview inductively in some way. Langan characterizes the, the way that he derived the CTMU as, as logical induction. Um, he took sort of two necessary givens. Um, again, are, like, are they givens? Are they assumptions? Or are they just like logically necessary? Yeah, the first is, is cogito ergo sum, or si or sum. If I err, then I am right. If I... If I Air that I am experiencing something, then I am right that I am experiencing something. 
and again i'm not i'm not particular about the grammar here i'm not particular about there being some kind of cartesian subject here or or i but the claim here is something like necessarily there is experience of some kind and the other is um barclays uh, to be is to be perceived and if you don't understand the logical necessity of that claim then uh i would uh humbly ask you to go back to certain earlier episodes that I've done. And then um, from there, uh, so Langan, once he's taken these two logically necessary uh, givens on board, he just reasons from what is necessary to ensure uh, logical integrity and consistency of, of reality at every level of scale and under every conceivable operation. So note that Langan you know, reached the idea of the CTMU uh, the same way that anyone else reaches any uh, idea. It wasn't just dropped into his head. Um, it was something that he arrived at through a process of acquiring knowledge. The same way that Aquinas, for example, reached his five ways arguments. They are, they are at least purported uh, to have the force of logical necessity behind them. And, and I think I think they do. Um, uh, they are purported to be logically necessary, and yet um, uh, they they had to be reached um, through an an evolutionary process of you know just human maturation and putting ideas together and so forth. Okay, so um, hopefully that that makes sense. Um, here's the next point. So I think presuppositional apologetics is a good idea, at least in theory. However, the idea behind reformed epistemology that the intellect has been so darkened after the fall that there are really um, strict limits on how much we can trust it. You know, that's a that's a dangerous idea in the sense that if you if you push it too much, it, it just becomes self-refuting. So, you know, if your intellect is so super darkened, how can you even trust it to reveal to you that the intellect is darkened? Well, Look, my darkened intellect didn't tell me that the intellect is darkened. The Bible told me that the intellect is darkened. What did you use to interpret the Bible? Your intellect, naturally. If you had an IQ that was two standard deviations lower than what it actually is, you can bet that your interpretation of the Bible would be different than what it is now. That's a way of showing you that you use your intellect to reveal to you what the Bible says. There is no getting around the, the intellect as an intermediary between you and the Bible, however unfortunate that may be for your Reformed epistemology. Put another way, let's say, okay, your intellect is just really, it's really messed up, right? It's really unreliable. How can you trust your intellect then uh, to, to, to validly interpret the Bible as telling you that your intellect is so dark and that you know, you can't trust it as far as you can throw it, etc. I'm just saying, yeah, no, it's, it, look, it's true that there are limits to our intellect. I'm, but if you push that idea, you know, too far or too hard, then it, it just becomes self-refuting. And um, now is Plantinga, is he, is he making this mistake? Is he um, going overboard in, in terms of, uh, characterizing the intellect as as darkened and and flawed you know I, I i don't know but the problem with an idea like this is that one can never 
precisely characterize, you know, how much or how little trust one is placing in the intellect. And that just kind of makes it uselessly ambiguous as far as I'm concerned. Okay, um, so to return to my main point and repeat myself a little bit, uh, presuppositionalism is a good idea in theory. However, it's the execution, which I personally take to be problematic. Presuppositionalism works with something uh, really specific and spelled out like the CTMU. However, it may be questioned whether the particular reform, the brand of Christianity that most presuppers work with is sufficiently fine-grained to be up to this task. For example, can you demonstrate using reformed Christianity as your worldview that other forms of Christianity are, in, are incoherent? Um, can you demonstrate that Islam is incoherent um, and other religions? So, you know, I'm sure some presuppers would tell me, yeah, I can demonstrate that other forms of Christianity are incoherent. And I'll ask them, you know, what they mean. And they'll tell me, well, it's because, you know, we have a better interpretation of certain verses. Well, you know, the problem with interpreting verses is that, first of all, nobody, nobody seems to agree. You know, even within, like, the tightest Reformed circles, you know, there's still going to be a little variance in how people interpret uh, the verses, which goes to show that the whole process of, Bible interpretation is uh, necessarily somewhat subjective. And so it's just not clear how one can rigorously prove that someone else's uh, interpretation of some other Christian's interpretation of Scripture is, is, um, is incoherent or is um, not doing full justice to the text. You know, especially where a principle like sola scriptura is involved. So Sola Scriptura says, you know, it's like Bible alone. And, and we, we use scripture to interpret scripture. It's like, okay, the problem is that the Bible is not infinite. It's a finite book. It contains a finite number of verses. And, um, and on top of that, the verses which are contained in the Bible say very little about how to interpret the Bible. There's no book of hermeneutics, for example, um, who has... Uh, as the 16th verse of chapter 3, something like, let scripture interpret scripture, or, you know, uh, let sola scriptura um, be your principle when you uh, do theology, or let scripture be the norming norm, etc. Like, where did you get this? You, you got it from scripture, yeah, but under, like, very loose rules of interpretation. Um, the Catholics read scripture, and they don't get these ideas. Is that because they've been reading scripture wrong? Where's the verse that, that tells you, you know, how to interpret it the reformed way as opposed to the Catholic way? Um, even if the Bible were infinite and contained like an infinite number of metatextual verses that tell you how to interpret, you know, every preceding verse, you would never get to the end of interpreting it. Um, you, know, you would literally never stop reading. Um, anyway, uh, which is to say that you would never arrive at the determinate, you know, interpretation of Scripture. But, you know, the, the way that, that things stand with the actual Bible 
it's a finite number of verses, none of which speak all that clearly to the question of how the Bible as a whole should be interpreted, because indeed the Bible does not seem conscious of itself as like a unitary book. It doesn't tell you what all books should go in the Bible, for example. But anyway, that's an aside. Um, the Bible as it is, it's a finite number of verses, and and what that means is that when you go about interpreting it, because there's not very much metatextual guidance within the Bible, you're going to have to assure, uh, uh, you're going to have to assign logical uh, priority to certain verses over others without any clear guidance on you know which verses you should assign priority over others. So you're going to be making more or less arbitrary decisions. They're not actually arbitrary. They're informed by your intellect, which is unfortunately seriously darkened on, on the Reformed view. Um, but you're going to be making, you know, more or less from the standpoint of the text, arbitrary decisions about, you know, which verses to assign priority over others. And, and you're going to end up with a essentially circular um, interpretive structure. Um, but the problem is that you can't claim for your circular interpretive structure the force of logical necessity. There will always be other possible um, uh, circular uh, structures which are demonstrably coherent, at least in the sense that you can't pick out a clear and obvious logical flaw in them. You're just going to say they don't conform to the, the verses as you interpret them. That's a very um, important distinction, if you can see it. So anyway, multiple circular uh, interpretations of scripture are possible in the interpretation of scripture and then it's it's like you know nobody has any has any claim to the best interpretation of scripture as far as scripture itself is concerned um you can appeal to philosophy you can appeal to something else but but then then you're you, you can appeal to tr tradition but then you're um no longer following the principle of sola scriptura Okay, so can, okay, let me, let me make this point. To argue in a distinctly presuppositional way, you have to really be exposing logical problems in, in your opponent's worldview. You, you, can't, you can't be arguing in a distinctly presuppositional way while restricting yourself to identifying sort of empirical problems in your opponent's worldview. Like, for example... Um, an adherent of Islam, a Muslim, says that the Bible contains absolutely no in, uh, no textual variants, and then you point out on empirical grounds that actually, look, here's this textual variant over here, and there's this uh, textual variant over there. So I don't know if I just misspoke, so let me restate that. Um, let's say you're a Reformed pre-supper, and you're arguing against a Muslim. Um, the Muslim says the Quran has absolutely no textual variance. And then you point out that it does. You, the presupper, point out that the Quran does have textual variance. But the grounds on which you point out that fact are not logical. They are empirical. Like, I know of, you know, this textual variant which exists in some museum somewhere. You can say, this is, this is how I, a presupper, would combat the Muslim worldview but I just want to point out that there's nothing distinctly presuppositional in this in this approach. This is the same approach that might be used by a Catholic apologist, for example. Okay, so to give another example of how it's difficult um, on a presuppositionalist frame, at least a reformed presuppositionalist frame, to actually demonstrate the incoherence of 
some rival spiritual worldview, I'm going to bring up the issue of Islam. So, you know, presumably, if you're arguing against Islam in a distinctly presuppositional way, you're going to be pointing out logical problems um, which are endemic to um, the worldview or the philosophy of Islam um, and which are not shared by your own worldview. I've seen some Christians try to actually meet this challenge and um, argue uh, something along the lines that, um, you know, uh, it's the notion of Tawheed, the distinctly Unitarian and non-Trinitarian understanding of God, which is held by Islam and also in most um, branches of Judaism, if not all. Um, it's this which is logically problematic, because in reality we see that there is um, multiplicity in unity, um, and unity underneath multiplicity, etc. Well, you know, I would buy that if you were sufficiently broad-minded to entertain the notion of a God who is um, not absolutely separate from his creation, who is, you know, at once the ground of being and also the whole of creation in some sense, the whole of all that exists, I should say, the, um, the sum of everything that is real. But if you hold to the view that God is like absolutely separate from his creation, as many uh, reformed folks, as well as Muslims for that sample, uh, for, for, for that matter, uh, seem, to, seem to think, then I don't really know what follows from the existence of uh, uh, multiplicity amid unity um, with respect to the coherence of God. Because, yeah, we may observe in the reality that we inhabit, we may observe in creation that there's multiplicity within unity, but if God is totally separate from his creation, I don't see how that supports the inference that God himself is also uh, triune or in some sense multiple while at the same time being one. You might say that that um, the um, the God of the Muslims, Allah, um, he is like so radically one and unlike his creation that you can't even validly refer to him. I mean, at least you can make this argument if you are not yourself committed to an extreme version of the doctrine of divine simplicity, which many reformed preceptors are not. Um, however, you know, the Muslim can come right back and say that, okay, granted, it's a mystery how, how uh, Allah can, can be so radically one and apart from his creation and yet also be validly referred to by us. But, but you have, you, you reformed Christians must contend with the mystery of God being three persons in one being. The Father is not the Son, is not the Holy Spirit, and yet all three of these are God. How do you make sense of that in a way that is not tritheistic? Because, of course, one can say, well, they, they each instantiate the property of Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet they're, but they're not separate entities. They're one, but they're also separate. How do you make sense of that? Well, it's a mystery. Okay, so... Here we have the problem of labeling one's own contradictions mysteries while insisting that one's opponent's contradictions are problems. Theology is, shall we say, too easy, but really read logically bankrupt. 
when we enforce the principle of non-contradiction only selectively. Theology is too easy when we enforce the principle of non-contradiction only selectively. And, and note also, there's nothing really presuppositional about that. It's like, I have a logical problem, you have a logical problem. There's an impasse. No worldview, yours or mine, has clear priority over the other, at least if we reason honestly. But instead, we're just going to be giving more or less arbitrary preference to one mystery over another. I don't see how that's helpful. Now, you can, if you like, factorize the Godhead in some CTMU-inspired way, uh, universe what is it? Langan likes to say theory, universe, and model. I like to speak of the infinite, the finite, and the sort of relationship of love um, that sort of uh, governs the dynamic between, or I should say the principle of love, which governs the dynamic between the infinite and the finite. And I, in order to do, that, to do this, I have to have a non-simple uh, interpretation of the Godhead which many reformers are open to, but they're, what they're not open to is the idea of uh, extreme imminence that you find in, um, in, in Langan's thought, for example. My own thought is, is extremely influenced by, by Langan's. I won't say it's identical to it because I don't understand everything he says, but most everything that he says I agree with. So to that extent, um, my, my thinking can be regarded as an instantiation of Langan's thinking. See, really, there are hard questions to be answered in theism. Um, again, I would frame it like this. Forget the idea that universe means everything physical. Take the word universe and replace it with the definition of everything that's real. Where the universe means everything real, what is God's relationship to it? Is he, is he a member of that set of real things? Or is he the set itself? Or is he both? If you say that God is not merely a member of the set, but he's also not the set either, then you're saying that God is not real. Where universe means the set of everything real in any sense at all. You can talk about different senses of reality, but ultimately if they can interoperate, then there is a common underlying sense of reality. If you take everything real in that most fundamental sense, what is God's relationship to that set? If you say he is that set, that sounds an awful lot like imminence and, and, and pantheism, and you don't want that. So suppose you say that he's just one entity among others. If you say that, then you're really in no position to explicate the the true necessity of God's existence. His existence is really just as contingent as that of, you know, Zeus or any other God. One can't really articulate any, any clear and intelligible sense in which God, who is just one entity among others, yet has necessary existence. You can just insist on it definitionally, but, but when you actually inquire as to the meaning of that definition, no one knows what you mean. So my point is that, like, unless you grapple with these questions neither of which is like an attract... See, when you take the dichotomy that I just laid out, neither of those um, options is attractive to the Reformed pre-supper. Um, but unless you grapple with that stuff, you're going to have to end up appealing to mystery. But if you can appeal to mystery, why can't your opponent? That's really what I would continually ask. So anyway, at this point, one might say that, well, presuppositional apologetics is really meant to 
be used against the non-believer. It only truly works as presuppositional apologetics against the atheist. So let's go look at the problems with presuppositionalism, at least the specific reformed brand that you know you see put forward in the contemporary discourse. Let's look at the problems that presuppositionalism faces as applied against atheists. Um, all the atheist has to do is shift tactics from debating empirical matters to pointing out logical inconsistencies um, and whatever brand of theology that you're using. I think the CTMU is an exception, but pretty much anything else, um, if it's not informed by the CTMU, it's going to really be open to critiques on, on logical grounds. Theism cannot rescue naturalism from naturalism's intellectual bankruptcy wherever theism is itself intellectually bankrupt. Put another way, if you appeal to mystery even once the game is over, for you allow your worldview, or if you allow your worldview, to depend on any mysterious axiom, then you must extend the same charity to your opponent. So, um, I'm, I'm imagining... I'm imagining an objection from a reformed pre-supper right now. Um, he might uh, fire back that um, an atheist cannot legitimately hold the universe to be a mystery, but the pre-supper can legitimately hold that God is a mystery. It's just in the nature of God for him to be a mystery, it can be argued. Okay, so here's what I would say to that. First of all, is God a mystery in practice or in principle? You know, what I would mean by him being a mystery in principle is like if he's logically contradictory, if he doesn't obey uh, the principle of uh, non-contradiction, then he's inconceivable in, pr in principle. Um, so if God is inconceivable in this sense, then even God cannot understand himself. For can God imagine a square circle? I don't think a Reformed pre-supper would be willing to say that God can do that. They're, they're a little bit more rationalistic than that. So um, they're going to say, the, the, the pre-supper is going to say that God is just a mystery in practice. He's comprehensible in principle, just, just not to us in practice. But he's, he's, in principle, he's comprehensible, as evidenced by the fact that he comprehends himself. Okay. Um, but the atheist can also claim that it is uh, likewise in the nature of the universe to be inconceivable in practice. One can easily imagine the following argument, uh, drawing upon the famous quotation from J.B.S. Haldane. Um, For reasons having to do with the environments that we evolved in and the things our brains evolved to do, quote, the universe is not only queerer than we suppose, but queerer than we can suppose. In other words, what epistemic right do we think um, we have um, to understand the way that the universe works, given that we only evolve to um, experience things at the particular level of scale that we experience things at, which is neither astronomical nor, nor quantum, etc., etc. So they at least have an argument here. I don't think it actually works. But the problem is that I, I, I think that the, the other... What? I, the problem is that I think that... Um, The Reformed and pretty much all other traditional conceptions of God are also basically unworkable. They have logical inconsistencies that, that just have to be um, defended by appeals to mystery. So the, the, 
the presupper can answer back, if our senses and intellect are merely evolved rather than divinely safeguarded, then how can we expect to obtain any knowledge validly? It's like, okay, that's fair enough. But at this point, the atheist can simply repeat whatever line of inquiry was initially met with the assertion of divine mystery. For example, how is Trinitarianism not tritheism? And for the following objections, I'm thinking of an episode that was done by Emerson Green on his counter-apologetics podcast, which is good in the sense that if you're not, if you're not listening to the kinds of arguments that he's bringing out, then, then he can hit you with them. Because as, as, as far as I can see, most uh, Christian apologists are not um, taking measures to defend themselves against the kinds of arguments that, that, that Emerson Green was laying out um, in in uh, his counter-apologetics podcast. I forget which episode. Like, for example, God is a consciousness, but he's static, as is sometimes contended, like absolutely immutable. Then how is he a consciousness? What sense can be made of a consciousness in quiescence? Or God is incorporeal, but he knows all these corporeal experiences, like he knows what it's like to drink coffee. Hmm. Or, you know... You know, how do we have three persons in one being? How do we have um, uh, Christ being fully human and uh, fully divine and yet being one person, two natures in one person? Um, how can God just exist without a cause? Um, well, I'm not sure if he made all of these arguments. How can, but, but like, you know, again, how can the logical necessity of God's being actually be demonstrated? without simply appealing to mystery all over again. If you appeal to mystery in answering any of these questions, um, then as far as I can see, your, your presuppositionalism enjoys no advantage over, over atheism. I think most Reformed people would appeal to mystery in, in answering uh, some or all of these objections. And so, again, I don't really see how they can go about demonstrating the logical idempotence of their worldview, how they can go about demonstrating that their worldview must be assumed in order uh, for any uh, kind of knowledge to be validly obtained because their worldview contains problems and appeals to mystery just as you know the atheist's worldview contains problems and appeals to mystery. So anyway, that's the sort of long and short of my... Um, of, of, of the, the problems that I see in presuppositional apologetics, not necessarily in, in its conception, but in its execution. Granted, I didn't really go into much depth here, and you know, based on the wide variety of positions that it's possible to take, even under the relatively small umbrella of, of Reformed uh, philosophy, Reformed um, theology, um, you know, people might might have you know different um, counter arguments they could um, level against what I've said, and there there the devil would be in the details, so to speak. I would have to I would have to eat, I would have to meet each objector on his or her particular ground, and you know I'm I'm willing to at least try to do that, but I'm just recognizing that in this this format I don't I don't have the ability to do that. Um, so anyway. Um, Yes, uh, hopefully that, that was interesting. I think I'll leave it here for now. Um, if I have further thoughts on presuppositionalism, then I'll do a part two. 
Um, and um, until then, I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening.